Isn't it amazing how we tend to excuse our sin when God takes our sin so seriously? There are two ways that you can know sin is very, very bad. The first is hell. Uh, God had to create something like hell to demonstrate that sin is extremely bad. The other thing is the cross. Uh, God showed on the cross the judgment for sin on His Son. Both reveal how seriously God takes sin. Sin is rebellion. Sin leads to death, for the wages of sin is death. And it leads to eternal separation from God and ultimately, to our subject today, to judgment. I know that looking back, I have found myself using terms to differentiate. I've even said in several of these sermons uh, the difference between gross sin or big sin and small defections. Now, now please hear me when I say that. There is such a thing as gross sin, and there are people who delve into that. But in reality, the Scripture reveals that sin is sin. I, I don't want to slip into the Roman Catholic mentality of mortal and venial sins, mortal being the big sins that will completely get you out of the circle of God's grace, and venial sins being those small sins which are bad but can be confessed and made up pretty quickly. Big sins are bad. Little sins are bad. And when you look at the history of our forefathers, and I'm talking about our biblical forefathers, it seems that they allowed these things that we've called small defections in their lives, turning away from God ever so slightly, whether it was in their minds something as simple as complaining in the wilderness, it wasn't long before those things became the building of idols to worship. Even when they got into the promised land, it wasn't really a big leap from intermarrying with the peoples, the nations of Canaan. I can just imagine sometimes like today, a, a, a son coming up to his dad and saying, Dad, why can't I marry that Canaanite? I love her. That can't be wrong. Even when specific commands were made by God about intermarrying. So it wasn't a great leap from that to adopting and then following and then serving the gods of the nations and even to the point of sacrificing their children to Molech. This progressed with a pattern of defection and judgment and sin and then they would cry out to God and be restored. And that would happen over and over again until finally Finally, Jerusalem reached the point at which God said that they were worse than Sodom in the abominations that they had done. Now, into this, let's insert the prophets along the way. God was merciful to send prophets like Joel to remind people that they were God's beloved children and, and, and then to explain to them that things were going on in their lives to, to draw them back to God, to love Him with all of their heart, 
to reveal their sin, to interpret those things going on around them so that they would see their sin, to repent, to return to God once again and walk in His blessings. That brings us to the study of Joel. That's why God wrote Joel. It says right at the very beginning, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, to the people of the southern kingdom, the nation of Judah. Now, the amazing thing is, and I've said this to you on several occasions, but it bears repeating, is that this is not just some ancient story with a moral lesson. God, the Scriptures say, wrote it for our benefit, for for Christians, for you and for me living today. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, now these things, going back, these things took place as examples for us, and I'm going to insert this, on whom the end of the ages have come, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, this is the fourth and the last message I shared with you last week, that there will be at least one addendum to this series, but this is the last in this brief overview of the book of Joel. Let me go back and review for you. Some of you are new um, to this study today, so let me go back and just bring us up to date so we can jump into this important subject that is before us today. In chapters 1 and 2, we see very clearly that God sent a a pandemic, a horrible invasion of locusts. And intermingled with that was a drought that absolutely devastated the land. And by that, I mean, their economy was in the tank, their worship was disrupted. And the reason? It's clear. Joel makes it clear. They had defected in their hearts and perhaps in their worship and in their living from God. The remedy? That's also very clear. Repent. Return to God with all of your heart. Well, the indication is that they did, and God restored them. And then the last part of chapter 2, we find that, that He poured out His blessing again. So, He was addressing a current situation that in many ways speaks to us today. But hang on, there is more to come. Joel then tells them in in the last part of chapter 2, something that was incredible. They could hardly even imagine this. Something incredible that would happen in the future, in what he and, and then Peter later on on the day of Pentecost would call the last days. Now, I've had people all along the way during this coronavirus pandemic ask me a lot of questions about what is going on. And one of those questions is this, Pastor, are we in the last days? Let me give you a definitive answer to that. The answer that the New Testament gives us is absolutely yes. We have no fewer than three authors who tell us that. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he goes back to the prophecy of Joel, and he says, in the last days it shall be. God declares that in the book of Joel. Then Paul, later on, and almost at the end of his ministry, he writes this about the last days. He said, look, Christian, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Would you Would you agree that increasingly we've been experiencing times of difficulty? 
James puts it like this. He, he, he's rebuking, he's exhorting the Christians. And he says this, that you shouldn't do this in the last days. There are other things that are higher priorities. He said, you have laid up treasure in the last days. And then Peter writing again in his epistle, the, the second epistle of Peter, knowing first of all, and, and boy, do we have this around us today, that scoffers will come when? In the last days with their scoffing. So that's chapter 2. At the beginning of the last days, our great and awesome God will come to dwell in his people who are saved. How is he going to do that? The answer is given in Joel, and it finds its fulfillment in the second chapter of Acts. He will pour out the fullness of the third person of the Trinity, his Holy Spirit, on all who are saved. Not just a few, but all who are saved. Now, the amazing thing, that this is not just for the Jews. And Joel even points to this. I wonder if the Jews of, uh, of those days got it. But he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will, will find that presence of God. They will be filled with the fullness of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this brings us up to chapter 3. And in this chapter, now you've got to get a picture, contemporary in chapters 1 and 2, at the end of chapter 2, he jumps forward to the, the inauguration of the last days. And folks, we have been in the last days all of these years since the time of the day of Pentecost. But he jumps forward to something that is yet future. It is a part of the last days, but it's the consummation of the last days. It's the grand finale of the last days. It's what Joel calls, and other people call it that too, the day of the Lord. When God is going to do two things, and we see this in chapter 3, when he is going to save his people, we're going to talk about that, that'll come second, but also he will judge the nations, it says specifically, and the nations refer to all those who have rejected him, the great, the magnificent God who created them, who have rejected his anointed, his Messiah, and who have opposed his people, his saved ones. So let's look at chapter 3. I'd like you to, if you haven't already, to open your Bibles to chapter 3. You might be wondering why we didn't read a scripture at the, at the beginning. But we're going to be reading through this entire second chapter, excuse me, third chapter of Joel and making comments. First, we're going to talk about judgment in terms of the ultimate judgment of the nations. And that being not only the theme of of the book of Joel, at least in chapter 3, but the theme of Scripture. Let's just begin with verse 1, the first part of verse 1, so we can get the setting, and then we're going to work through this and make some applications along the way. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, For behold, in those days and at that time. Again, Joel is looking forward to a time yet to come, the day of the Lord. In other words, the second coming of Christ to not only gather his people together to ultimately save them, but also to judge the nations. And when you see that word nations, don't only think of geopolitical nations or city-states, the, 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 the nations that we understand to be like the United States of America or Mexico or Canada or Turkey. 
Certainly it has a meaning in that, but think of the peoples of the earth. Now let me say this, because we're going to be reading some portions of Scripture, some, some, some very stark illustrations from the book of Revelation in, in just a few minutes. People want to differentiate And I find that many people are going to get stuck on the when of these things happening. And if you get stuck on the when of these things happening, you may not get to the what. In other words, the certainty. And what God wants us to see is that Jesus is coming and these things will be happening and there is certainty. Verse 2, God says this, I will gather all of the, again, here's that word. We're going to see this illustrated in the words of Jesus in just a moment. I will gather all of the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. Now let's stop right there and let's get again the context of this when he says, I will gather the nations. Jesus, in speaking of his second coming in Matthew 24, said this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him, now listen to this, a parallel with Joel, will be gathered all the nations. But he specifies, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, here's one thing that I want you to get from this chapter of Scripture, and this may be difficult for us to grasp, particularly in our current cultural situation. This chapter weaves together in talking about the judgment of the nations and the salvation of the people of God. It weaves together God's glory. That's the ultimate theme of Scripture. But God's glory as seen in, number one, the salvation of sinners, in which we see His mercy and His grace, the riches of His glory, it says, in Romans. We're going to look at that in just a second. So we see that mingled together with, and I don't know that you've thought in this way before, but with his glory in the destruction of sinners. Romans chapter 9, Paul weaves these two things together in just a couple of verses. He asks the question, talking about God's sovereignty in all things, God's sovereignty in salvation. He asked the question, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and power, I would add to that because we see this throughout Scripture, the expression of his holiness and his justice. So what if God, desiring to show his wrath and power, his holiness and justice, uh, to make his power known, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God's glory is going to be seen in the destruction of sinners. And that, Paul says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. 
You see, they, they always go together, all through Scripture. We're going to see that in just a second with, with quick vignettes of how God has woven those two, two things together. But throughout the history of the nations and the people of God, we have seen these things put together. One is complete without the other. And I'm talking about God's glory shown in His salvation of sinners, God's glory shown in His destruction of sinners. Let's just take a couple of quick examples. Let, let me pose it in, in terms of a question. Was God saving Noah and his family? Now, you, you know, if, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that story. And Noah, and he, he built the ark, and his family was saved. And if you've got kids or grandkids, maybe you have the little play toys with the little ark and the little animals. But there's a lot more to that story than just God saving, delivering Noah and his family. Was he saving Noah and his family? And the answer is yes. But was he also, at the same time, judging mankind by destroying all of the rest of the people on the earth? through the flood. Now, you know what's amazing? In the New Testament, Jesus is describing this scene about Noah, and, and he, he puts it in these terms, which is kind of interesting. He said, and, and I'm going to paraphrase him, he said they were just going about their business. They were just living life. They were eating. They were drinking. Maybe they were doing it at home. Maybe they were doing it at a restaurant, or maybe they were doing takeout. But it says they were also marrying and giving in marriage and just, just living life prior to his return. That what he, that's what he's referring to when he talks about that. But here's the key. They were unconcerned with the call of God on their lives. Noah, for years, had repeatedly warned them, God is coming in judgment. Please repent. Escape his judgment. In fact, sometimes we feel like that God is arbitrary in these situations. He is not, and I'm going to show you through Scripture why He is not arbitrary in His judgment of sinners. In Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. The Bible is not afraid to use a word like wickedness. And that every intention of the thoughts of His heart was only evil continually. And so out of that mass of people, God chose to save Noah and his family. Let, let me move on to another example. Was God leading Lot and his family out of Sodom from destruction? The answer is yet. Yes, but at the same time, he was also destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 3.13 gives us an insight as to why. God is not arbitrary. Now, the men of Sodom were, here's that word again, wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Here's another vignette. Was God delivering Israel from Egypt? The answer is yes. But was he also destroying Egypt as well? You know, back in Genesis 15, God was giving his prophecy to Abraham about the future. And he said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring, the, the nation of Israel, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. They will be servants there, but not in a good way. They will be afflicted. How long? Four hundred years. You know, jumping to the Revelation, we see that the saints who are being afflicted cry out to God, how long? How long, O Lord? 
Finally, God said, I will bring judgment on the nation that they will serve, just as God will bring judgment on the nations that afflict the people of God. Let's go on to another vignette. Was God giving Israel a new home in Canaan, leading them out of Egypt, leading them through the wilderness after their wanderings into a land flowing with milk and honey, an incredible place. Was he planting them there? And the answer is yes. But was he also destroying the nations that lived there? Were the people of Israel's swords dripping with the blood of the people of those nations? Now, I I know that this is controversial. And and in our current culture today, people would look at this and hear this story. Maybe some of you are thinking that, and the the buzzword today is xenophobia. Were the Israelites just xenophobes? They just hated all other nations? No. Again, back in Genesis 15, 16. See, God always has a purpose in judgment, and he is not arbitrary, and his judgment is just. Number one, God was incredibly patient with the nations of Canaan. Back in Genesis 15, when when God was telling Abraham about his people would sojourn in Egypt, and and he gave this reason. You may, may have never heard this before. It says, and they shall come back here in Canaan in the fourth generation. Why? Why 400 years? Because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God was giving those pagan nations year after year, century after century. And I don't know how he was revealing himself to them, but he was waiting until their iniquity was filled up before he acted. We find this when Israel got back into the land in in exactly why God would make such a distinction and say, I want you to wipe out the, the nations of this land. In Leviticus 18, we hear these words, don't make yourselves unclean by any of these things. If you read through chapter 18 of Leviticus, you're going to discover those things. But listen as he goes on, for by all these, the nations, listen, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land, because of them, has become unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. We might even jump to the New Testament. Was God ransoming you from your sins, Christian? The futility of your life and an eternal hell? Yes. But at the cost of His judgment poured out for our sins upon His Son Jesus on the cross, Paul says this in his second letter to the Corinthians, for our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, that's just a little excursion. I said we were going to comment along the way. Let's go back. Verse 3 in chapter 3. Trust me, we're going to finish today. Listen to this. The, The horrible in humanity of the nations against Israel. And there, there are just, there is scripture after scripture that points this out. But listen to what Joel talks about. He explains it. And they have cast lots for my people. That's how worthless the Jews were in their sight. They have traded a boy for a prostitute. They have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. 
What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? Are you paying me back? I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and I have carried my ri- and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Gentiles in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them. I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Here is what I want you to see in this passage of Scripture about the the inhumanity of the nations toward the nation of Israel. And and I want you to bring it up to date. We're going to see this is a New Testament concept as well. Please hear this. Lost people are not neutral. That could be one of the biggest deceptions in the church and in the the culture that, oh, you've chosen to be a Christian and other people have chosen this. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm just neutral. I'm not going to choose anything. No, lost people are not neutral neutral, particularly in their hatred toward God. They don't see it as that. And in their hatred toward his people. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, then they will deliver you. He said this to his disciples, which includes us. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. His judgment comes on those nations, on those people who hate God, the rebellious, high-handed sin, and who hate his anointed, the Messiah Jesus, and who hate his people. Now, Joel's going to shift, and this is all in that section under the judgment of the nations. This is amazing. He shifts to a picture of war. Now, I know that some of you and many of you have shared with me that you're very visual, And so the the illustrations, I thought of some illustrations that I could give. By the way, you know that symbols and illustrations are always poor substitutes for the reality. They never can quite grasp the reality. And so I was trying to think of of the imagery here and and, and the, the tsunami, the fire of God's judgment. And I thought to myself, I can think of no better place to go than the Scriptures. And so from here on out, primarily, I will be giving you word pictures to to help you to see the fullness of what God is going to do to those people who war against him. Now, this is incredible. We'll read here, starting in verse 9 for for a moment. But but this is the picture that to me is so amazing. Do, Do people, do men really believe that they can successfully war against God? Apparently they do. Let me weave together the psalmist and John who wrote the Revelation. Why do the nations rage in the people's plot in vain? That's quoted also in the book of Acts. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in Revelation, John writes this. Again, it's so amazing to me. They will make war on the Lamb. Pick up in Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Now, remember, 
He is talking to the nations. This has been used, and we'll see this in just a second, this has been used as an encouragement for the people of God to prepare themselves for war. But no, this is basically what God is saying. I'm going to boil it down for you. God is basically saying to the nations, if you think that you can come against me and fight me, then just get ready. You better prepare. You better consecrate yourself for war. Get, get all your weapons together and, and come and let's see what you can do against me. That's basically what he's saying. So, he's proclaiming among the nations, consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all of the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Come on, Goliath. Come up against God. This next verse, verse 10, has been so misused. I think it's been confused, honestly. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. This is spoken to the enemies. And he's saying, you better get all of the weapons you can marshaled against me. It's not going to do any good. But if you're going to come to battle, you better, you better take your plowshares and you better turn them into swords. You better take your pruning hooks and turn them into spears. Now, this is often confused with Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, which is a picture of the coming kingdom in which we will never experience war again. And it's just the opposite. We will be beating our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. But he's, he's telling, remember, in fact, he's taunting them. Get your weapons together. Let the weak say, I am strong. I do not think... Now, ESV says, let the weak say, I am a warrior. King James says, let the weak say, I am strong. I don't think that Don Moen, when he wrote that wonderful song um, that... that um, uh, remind me, Jonathan, what is it? Give thanks. Okay, I, I stumbled there for a minute. I didn't have it written down. Give thanks. Let the weak say I am strong. I think what he was referring to was Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians when he said, when I am weak, then I am strong because I depend upon the Lord. But sometimes people have gone there and used this passage as if it refers to Christians. Remember, this is directed toward the enemies of God. Let's read on. Verse 11, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations. Gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors. O Lord, let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there they will sit to judge. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Now, this is the second time the valley of Jehoshaphat is mentioned. Where is it? I, I've looked in concordances. I've looked on maps. There is no valley of Jehoshaphat. So what in the world could it mean? I, I'm going to take a, a liberty of interpretation from a story in the Old Testament. Two of the kings. This is found in First uh, Kings chapter 22. But if you remember Jehoshaphat, and that's the reference, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. So I think it's referring to a battle that was fought at least in part by Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Now remember that in the southern kingdom of Judah, there were eight kings that were considered good. 
The rest of them were lousy. In the nation of Israel, Samaria, the, the northern kingdom, do you know that there were no kings who were considered good? They were a mess. So one of the worst among them, arguably, was Ahab. Now, there's a great story of his repentance and coming back. And God said, I'm not going to bring the total judgment upon you. I'll, I'll wait for the generations after you. But Ahab was a scoundrel. And that's, that's putting it nicely. Well, anyway, he, here's the, the short version of the story. Ahab at one point, and he hated prophets who prophesied the truth. So Elijah shows up one day and he says to Ahab, you're going to die and the dogs will lick your blood and that's that. There's nothing you can do about it. So later on, now th this is later on, Ahab and Jehoshaphat who have been enemies, they strike a deal. They strike a bargain. They're good friends now. And so Ahab said, hey, Jehoshaphat, I'm thinking about going down and doing battle with Ramoth Gilead. Would you like to join me? Jehoshaphat says, sure, my men are your men. And so they get the men together. And Jehoshaphat, now remember, he was a good king, king of the southern tribe of Judah. And so he says, wait, wait, before we go to battle, can we seek of the Lord? Let's inquire of the Lord. Ahab really didn't want to do it, but he called 400 prophets. They were his prophets, and so they all prophesied well of the battle. And they said, oh, you go down. You're going to just wipe out the enemy. You're going to win. And that was good enough for Ahab, but it wasn't good enough for Jehoshaphat. And so he said, is there anybody else? It wasn't Elijah, but it was another man by the name, a prophet by the name of Micaiah. And Ahab kind of sighed, a deep sigh, and he said, yeah, there's one more guy. His name is Micaiah, and I hate him. Well, why do you hate him? Because he always tells me bad about me. Basically, he was just telling the truth. And so they called in Micaiah. Well, what's the deal, Micaiah? Are we going to win? He said, yeah, you're going to win. But he said, you, O king, are going to be destroyed. Now, here's what Ahab tried to do. And this is what people will do. And this is what the Valley of Jehoshaphat is all about. When God comes to judge, there is no escape. People go to great lengths to escape the judgment of God. This is a picture of what Ahab did. He said, you know, I, I've heard the, the prophecies of Elijah and of Micaiah, and so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to wear my kingly robes, uh, my royal robes. I'm going to just dress like a common soldier, and I'll go into battle. So the enemy was looking for Ahab. They thought Jehoshaphat was Ahab. They went after him. He said, no, I'm Jehoshaphat. They said, no, we want Ahab. They couldn't find him. But in the last part of that, chapter 22, 1 Kings, tells the incredible story. It says, and a soldier, certain soldier, at random. Do you believe that anything is random with God? That he shot an arrow, and just by chance, it fell. Here is the king, heavily armored, without his royal robes, but it fell right in the joint between his scale armor and his breastplate. And he was mortally wounded, and he died, and they took him back to Samaria, and they washed out his chariot. And it says that the dogs came and licked the blood, and the prostitutes came and bathed in the pool where they washed the chariot.
Let the nations stir themselves and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. There's going to be no escape, no return. And I believe that that is what God wants us to know. Now, here's some more imagery. Verse 13. This looks like a nice little agricultural picture. Here, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Oh, that sounds nice. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. Yeah, we like that. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Uh-oh, who's he talking about there? This imagery is stunning. It speaks of the fierce judgment of God's holy wrath. Here's a word picture from the book of Revelation, verse 14. I'm just going to read through this. Those of you who are visual, get a picture of this. Then I looked, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now remember, God told Joel to write this because he knew exactly what was going to be happening. And also, by the way, If the symbol seems awful, remember that the symbol is never as bad as the reality. Verse 15 of chapter 14 of Revelation, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. It's ready to be judged. So he who sat on the cloud, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar. The angel has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe, ripe for judgment. Because in the next verse, so the angel swung his sickle, across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle. That's between four and six feet for 1,600 stadia. That's 200 miles in every direction, four to six feet deep. The judgment is coming against the nations. We might try, if we're not a part of the elect, part of the saved, to escape that, but there is no escape. Verse 14, Joel 3, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. By the way, evangelists have used this verse as us making a decision for Christ. No, that is God making the decision about judgment. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened. Look at these cosmic signs. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. Again, the cosmic signs are part of the picture of God's judgment. We see that in Joel, and we see it later on in Revelation. Chapter 6, listen to these cosmic signs. Behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich 
and the powerful and everyone, slave or free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Let me read another passage from Revelation. Again, what we're trying to do is to get into our minds these pictures of what it's going to be like on that day of judgment. Revelation chapter 9. Remember, Joel spoke of locusts, didn't he? But right here, John speaks of locusts, but how do I say it? They're, they're locusts on steroids, this Last week, we heard about a new plague that has invaded our nation, murdering hornets. Listen, folks, locusts and murdering hornets have nothing on what is going to ensue in those days of judgment. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads who are, foreheads, who are not saved. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, they, people will seek death and they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. That's a big locust. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is he, in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. Now, I, I've heard various descriptions of this. Maybe that John is trying to describe helicopters, attack helicopters. That would be bad, but folks, we can't even fathom the full picture of what this judgment is like. Let's go back to verse 19 in chapter 3 of Joel. Egypt shall become a desolation. Edom, a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. We've just been reading some word pictures, graphic, graphic, from the book of Revelation. And wouldn't you think that all through history, and particularly at the end when signs and wonders are happening, when these things uh, are given out by God, these judgments, that people would cry out in repentance? One more time from Revelation chapter 9. It reveals that they will continue in hardened rebellion. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works, of their hands, or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality 
or their thefts. Such is the day of judgment. And the question that Joel poses in chapter 2 earlier, verse 11, who, who can endure the day of the Lord? We just ask the question, who will escape? No one. But who can endure? The answer is the same. No one except those who have called upon the name of the Lord, as Joel says in chapter 2. Have you? Will you be ready to meet God's judgment? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Or will you, as we just read, remain hardened against the judgments of God that even now He is allowing us to experience to prepare our hearts for that great and ultimate, ultimate judgment? It brings me to the second and the last thing. We've seen that the ultimate judgment of the Lord will come upon the nations. And that's the theme of Scripture. But there's another theme, and it's found here as well. The ultimate salvation of the Lord's people. All who call upon the name of the Lord. Listen to these verses. Verse 1, verse 16, 17, 18, and 20. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, remember, we are in the last days. And he says, but the Lord is a refuge to his people a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never pass again through it. And in that day the mountains will drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all of the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley of Shittim. But Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. Paul, in speaking to those who were Jews and Gentiles, but in one particular place where he was speaking to Gentiles, to the nations, he said these words, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of all of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Some will look around, as the Bible says, and they will say, where is where is his coming? Haven't people been saying this from the beginning of the last days? Please do not confuse delay with uncertainty. Judgment is certain. Somebody asked me this last week, do I sense that the coming of Christ is soon? Frankly, I don't know the answer to that, but it's my sense that it could very well be even though right now His coming has been delayed. And that's a mercy. Is there any hope for you when He comes? Yes. As long as you respond before He comes. 
When the fire of God's judgment falls, the only safe place to be will be in Jesus Christ. Our refuge, as Joel calls him. And then when he comes back, it will be everlastingly too late. For those of us who have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, we know what we deserve, but we know that our sins have been judged on the cross. <laughs> we are not deserving of anything but hell. But through what Jesus has done, we are forgiven. We have been born again. We've been made new creations. And then someday when He comes back, He will say to us, not based on our deserts, but on the finished work of Christ, enter in and we will spend eternity with him this is again a picture of the day when you and i christian will celebrate in holiness as we just read in plenty at the table of the lord and in the presence of him who saved us and if you find yourself outside of saving faith in Jesus Christ, then let me quote again from Scripture. Today, if you hear His voice, is the day of salvation. Would you repent? Would you turn away from your sin? Everything that you've sought that is, is trying to give you life. And would you reach out to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in Him and His finished work on Calvary's cross? Father, I thank you and praise you that as we wrap up a study of Joel, we do so in a manner that leaves us, I hope, trembling before you as a holy God, trembling not only for the judgment that is coming on the nations, on the people who reject you and who come against your anointed and come against your people, but also trembling with anticipation for the great salvation that you will finish, that you will complete that you will consummate on the day that you return. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Pray for those who are in, in this uh, um, TV and, and YouTube audience, there at home, the comfort of their own couches, that somehow they will be struck in their hearts. They would not be comfortable. I'm talking about in, in a spiritual reality but they would cry out to you because everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, for those of us who do know you, help us to, to encourage ourselves and one another with these incredible truths. We thank you. We praise you. We look forward to what you are going to do in these days until the Lord Jesus comes back. We pray this in his name. Amen.